to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison, and I'm here with Meredith. Hello, I'm here. In this episode, we're going to try something a bit different. Meredith is going in blind, so her reactions will be totally natural and unscripted. I'm going to get right into it, and I want to start with the background of our victim, Paul Masters, and this sicko, Albert Fentress. Paul Masters was born December 3rd, 1960, He was the youngest of five children. It was a pretty big, close-knit, all-American family. He was six feet tall and 165 pounds, and 18 at the time of his death. He graduated from Spackenkill High School. While there, he was on the student government and football team. He excelled academically and was a National Merit Commended Scholar, and won a citizenship award. Now I heard. I've wait a minute. Stop. I've I've heard of Speck and Kill. Where, where isn't that upstate New York? Where is that? I believe it's like near Poughkeepsie or okay. in Poughkeepsie. All right. He was handsome, smart, and athletic, with a great future ahead of him. Albert Fentress was born in Brooklyn, New York, on July twentieth, nineteen forty-one. The oldest of three children. He did really well in school. Eventually, his family moved to Long Island to a farm where he worked when he had free time. His dad was very tough on the kids. At one point, his father caught him masturbating and told him that if he did it again, he would cut his balls off. What? Why? Why did he get mad at him? It's such a natural thing. Was he like really religious or? He became a middle school history teacher in Poughkeepsie. He had a modest house in an affluent neighborhood. Now, Mayor, he had an obsession with material possessions. He drove a Cadillac that he kept in pristine condition. He had a Rolex and prized collections of coins, stamps, crystal, and historical signatures. Most thought of him as an excellent teacher. He was one of those teachers that was really enthusiastic about the material. He brought theater to his lessons and really kept the students excited about learning. Okay. On the flip side, he was very strict and wanted his rules followed exactly. Eventually, people started to target him for being a bit flamboyant. People whispered about him being a pedophile and gay. His house was vandalized and broken into. It was egged. Uh, The stamp collection was stolen. And the vandals bought some chemicals, and burned the word fairy in his lawn. In order to protect himself, he purchased a handgun. Uh, Maybe I missed this. Is he married or is he single? He's single. He's by himself. Okay. Okay. On Sunday, August 19th, 1979, Paul Masters had to do some last-minute packing and spend some time with family and friends 
because he was leaving the next morning for his freshman year of college. In the evening, Paul walked to a friend's house and then went off to a party. From the party, Paul and his friends went to a nearby park to fight a rival football team. The cops showed up before anything happened and everyone scattered running. Meanwhile, Albert Fentress sat home alone, fantasizing about the rape scene in Deliverance. He began to write and rewrite a script based on this scene, adding castration and murder. He was so disgusted with himself that he destroyed the pages. Now, Mel, you're familiar with the scene that I'm talking about in Deliverance. I actually played a clip of it in the beginning of this episode. Uh, yeah, I've seen it a lot, and I actually watched it recently. I'm afraid. Where, where is this going? I'm afraid. Okay. You should be. Now, Fentress was waiting in his yard with his newly purchased handgun when Paul ran into the yard, and Fentress demanded to know why Paul was there. Paul explained about the abandoned fight and the cops chasing them, and Fentress seemed to believe him and offered to drive Paul home. Paul accepted, which I find a bit weird. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I, you know it, Maybe not in the 70s. Maybe not. In, in the, not in the 70s? It's not weird in the 70s. Now it would be bizarre. Yeah, but also it's a grown man and this kid is like a grown man and it's kind of one of those weird circumstances and the kid probably feels like, all right, let me just let this guy give me a ride home and make friends with him so he doesn't get pissed at me. You know what I mean? I, I, I mm-hmm. don't know. I don't. Yes, in retrospect, I guess if you look at everything, but he doesn't. He doesn't know everything, so I guess he figures it's okay. Well, it gets a little more. It's not like so. It's not like he just took a ride from him. So first, Fentress asked him to come inside for a minute. And once he got a good look at Paul in the light of his kitchen, he became aroused and attracted to him. Fentress offered Paul vodka, and the two drank together and had some snacks. After a while, he asked Paul to help him move something in the basement. I don't mean to be mean, but that is like the beginning of every horror movie you've ever seen. Like once someone says, hey, can you help me with something in the basement? That's like the beginning of the end. Once in the basement, Fentress pulled his gun on Paul and tied him by his hands and feet to a post in the basement. Then he undid Paul's jeans and pulled his jeans and underwear down. He attempted to perform oral sex on Paul, but Paul didn't get an erection. He wasn't responding, and this humiliated and enraged Fentress. He walked away and returned a moment later with a razor. Oh, my God. He made Paul spread his legs, and he began castrating him. Paul was screaming and begging him to stop, but Fentress told him that he couldn't stop now. He put the handgun to Paul's head and pulled the trigger. Holy crap. Fentress then finished slicing off Paul's genitals. (gasps) He then fired one more shot into Paul's head. Then Fentress went into his kitchen took out a frying pan, placed the genitals in it, and sautéed them with some cooking oil. He set the table with his best china and ate. What the F? How old, how old is the, the murderer? He's young. So if he was born in 1941 and this is 1979, 38. Okay, so like, is this, 
his first his first crime like he never did anything else before this well not that we know of at this point oh my god okay keep going okay so ventress then tried to drag paul's body up the basement steps to get rid of it but he was too weak and he fell on the steps he couldn't clean up the basement either there was just too much blood defeated ventress took a shower got dressed and called his real estate attorney and told him i shot someone then he just laid on the couch and waited. He called his real estate attorney? I think he called his real estate attorney because possibly it was the only attorney that he had contact with. Oh, okay. The real estate attorney called his own mother, who frantically called the police. The local police approached 216 South Grand Avenue, Fentress's house, with their guns drawn and saw Fentress through a window. The following is the exchange. Mr. Fentress, do you have a gun? I do. Where is it? It's on my knee. Throw the gun down. No, you take it. It's on my knee. It's simple. Please just take it. Mr. Fentress, put both of your hands on your face. When Fentress complied, the cops stormed in and cuffed him. They found Paul's body halfway up the basement steps. Fentress was read his rights and arraigned, and he pled not guilty. Now, the cops weren't supposed to discuss the case, but rumors started flying. The most upsetting was that Paul was a willing participant in homosexual bondage. This was only a horrible rumor and quickly put to rest at trial. And how did they figure that out? I'm assuming when the guy takes the stand, right? And Fentress did go on the stand and state that he had never met Paul before. The prosecutor sought an indictment on second-degree murder. Now, this is because in New York, first-degree murder is reserved for people that have killed cops, prison guards, or people in jail for life who commit murder while in jail. Right, and I, you know what, and I remember that because when we were looking into the Mengel case, we we kind of uncovered that. But yeah, I mean, the the laws back then were were different. If convicted, Fentress could face twenty-five years to life. At his next court appearance. Fentress, usually meticulous in his appearance, was a total mess. He hadn't bathed, eaten, or slept in days. He again pled not guilty. After a few days, Fentress was examined by a psychiatrist and deemed a suicide risk. He remained in jail for months on suicide watch. Now, under New York law, Fentress could enter a plea of not responsible by reason of mental disease or defect. So, not guilty by reason of insanity. Right, so in New York, the defense would have to prove that Fentress didn't know his behavior was wrong or that he was unable to stop himself from committing the act. Right. I was I, actually, I was going to ask you that because if you're pleading not guilty, like what's, what's, what's the premise? You didn't do it? <laughs> I mean, he obviously did it. If the defense was successful, Fentress would go to a psychiatric hospital until he was deemed cured. Then the law mandated that he be released. So 14 months after being arrested, Fentress did change his plea from not guilty to not responsible by reason of insanity. And I guess you can you can change your plea once you've already pled. Yes. I, I don't I don't I don't even know what my reaction. It would devastate me. It really would. Like I think about my nephews or my it, God, that's horrible. I mean, the thing is that with, you know, in, insanity, 
you sit there and you go, okay, the guy's obviously insane to commit a crime like this, but the punishment for insanity is more lenient than the punishment for actually committing the crime, it seems like to me. Like intentionally like committing a crime. intentionally committing a crime. Of course and then, it is. I, I don't know. I, I, that, that I guess if you're, if you're insane and you can't stop yourself from doing it or you don't know it's wrong. The punishment should be the same. The punishment, maybe not in a, I don't think they should go to a jail. I think they should be in a, s- a hospital, but I think they should be there for the 25 I guess, years, I guess, whatever. Right. Well, I guess my Whatever the prison is, sentence would be. Whatever the prison sentence would be is what the mental hospital sentence should be. You know what I mean? It, it right. should be, okay, maybe the, maybe the physical imprisonment is different, but it should still be the same amount of time but I, I, I don't know okay sorry go on go on okay yeah both the prosecutor and the defense would have psychiatrists who would have to agree that he was insane on october 31st 1980 both sides and their psychiatrists were in court they both agreed he was insane when he committed the crime and that he should be sent to a maximum security psychiatric facility This was also the day that everyone would learn the complete, gruesome facts of how Paul had died. The spectators were sobbing. Paul's mother hunched over and let out a loud moan. After the revelation of cannibalism, the spectators had to rush out of the courtroom so as not to be sick, and Paul's mother just burst into tears. Both doctors described Fentress as extremely smart, and someone who always wanted to appear above everyone else. He actually felt invisible and bought his collections and material things to compensate. I, I was just going to say, uh, I'm insecure. I'm not going to go cut up somebody's genitals and eat them. I mean, Jesus. The doctors testified that Fentress was incapable of dealing with stress and would fall into a psychosis when stressed. During the time of the murder, Fentress was under extreme stress from the vandals and break-ins. He was also dealing with his homosexual desires and self-loathing. The doctors agreed that when he saw Paul and became attracted to him, he fell into his psychosis. When he tried to remove Paul's body from the basement and he stumbled down the stairs, that snapped him out of the psychosis. In a rare move, the courts let Paul's family have a private psychiatrist evaluate and present testimony on this matter. That doctor also declared Fentress insane. At the conclusion, Fentress was sent to Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center, a maximum security facility that housed the state's most dangerous criminally insane. After some time, he was moved to Kings Park, which is a less secure facility, and eventually he was sent to Pilgrim State Hospital. I guess it was a less severe hospital than Mid-Hudson, because I remember in the first Pilgrim State episode that we did, uh, the Polish guy, what was his name? Adam Burwood. Adam Adam Burwood also went to Mid-Hudson as well, but then was released into Pilgrim State. And that's where he got out of when he committed his crime. Right. It's it's much less secure. Okay. So here's examples of that. For much of his stay in the hospital, he lived very comfortably 
He had a private air-conditioned room. He was allowed to roam the grounds freely. They weren't fenced in or anything. And he was frequently escorted off the grounds to shop and visit with his parents. He also went on hundreds of unsupervised trips to the beach, baseball games, and museums. So not exactly the kind of supervision I would like him to be having. That's ridiculous. Is that crazy? Uh, imagine being his parents. Oh, he's coming to visit us. What? I wouldn't even be around this guy. Yep. How long was he in Pilgrim State? After 19 years, Fentress was trying to be released. He was now 57 years old, and he claimed that he was cured and no longer a danger. And his doctors at Pilgrim State agreed. Fentress stated, quote, If there was the smallest possibility that I could do something like that again, I would never have made an effort to be released. Under New York law, no matter what the crime, once an insane patient was deemed cured, they couldn't be detained. The state had to prove he was still insane and dangerous. After his treatment team and various doctors testified for both sides, Fentress took the stand. I don't care what you say. If right. you if you commit an act like that, what he shouldn't do is even no try idea. to get released. Like I feel like that would be respectful. Yeah, it doesn't take away what you did. Sorry, too late. <laughs> now his strategy was to only discuss his life since the murder on the stand, because when the state went to cross-examine him, they could only cover what he discussed, and it worked. Well, he obviously purposely did it that way. Now, wait a minute. Is the jury familiar with... So do they not know his... Uh, they don't know the crime? I don't think so, no. Oh, my God. So they're instructed to answer two questions. First, is he suffering from a mental illness that requires care and treatment? And is he a danger to himself or others? So two questions. Five out of the six jurors have to say no to one of those questions so that he can be free. So he either is not suffering from the mental illness anymore or he is not a danger. So as to question one, the vote was six to zero. Yes, he is still suffering from a mental illness. As to the second question, the vote was five to one. No, no, he is not a danger to himself or others. So now he is technically free to live in a halfway house. But not yet. The judge has to issue his conditions for his release. Meanwhile, Governor George Pataki and New York State Attorney General Elliot Spitzer do not want him released, and they're giving interviews about it. They, they don't think this guy should be released. So on June 10th, 1999, the state files a motion to set aside the verdict releasing him, and the judge grants the motion, stating, quote, there is simply no valid line of reasoning and permissible inferences which could possibly lead rational men to the conclusion reached by the jury based on the evidence presented at trial. So now Fentress appeals, and he's granted a new trial. So he now, again, is trying to be released. On December 4th, 2001, Fentress's attorney's opening statement ends with, The law provides that if and when treatment yields results and he is no longer a threat to society, he must be released. This time, the doctor for the state disputed Fentress's initial diagnosis, the psychosis from stress, and stated that he was just a self-hating homosexual who was acting out a revenge fantasy when he murdered Paul. Okay, that makes me angry. Revenge fantasy, okay, 
maybe assault, maybe rape, <laughs> but not what he did. This is the doctor for the state. So this guy is saying that they were wrong in the beginning. He's actually, you know, more culpable. He wasn't in a psychosis. He was just acting out a revenge fantasy. He wasn't, he wasn't insane. He's just evil. <laughs> I mean, okay. All right. Well, that's better. <laughs> so that's what the state is now saying. That's better. So now when Fentress takes the stand this time, it's a bit different. He again talks about his treatment and life for the past years, but then he testifies that he had been truthful and forthcoming with his therapists and treatment team. He declared that he has never abused anyone, especially not a minor. But then the state dropped a bombshell. They had a witness that was 10 years old in 1979 when Fentress orally sodomized him over 20 times during tutoring sessions. What? So now they've got him. Was this, bef was this before the crime? It was like right around the time. It was all in 1979, so it was probably, probably right before. Okay. So now this day, the proceedings end for the day, and Fentress is returned to Pilgrim State. And while there, he speaks with his social worker, and he kind of goes over what happened during the day, and then he says that he never tutored anyone. And what struck her was that he didn't deny the molestation. He just said he didn't remember tutoring anyone. Rather than deny the claims under oath, he withdrew his bid for freedom. And three months later, he was in court again, this time attempting to stay at Pilgrim State and not be returned to Mid-Hudson, the maximum security facility. The state said that all of his years of therapy had been useless because he lied to his therapist in saying that he never abused anyone else. A doctor from Pilgrim State testified that Fentress's failure to honestly talk about his pedophilia with his therapist undermined the therapy. Psychotherapy only works if the patient is willing to participate, and the key is an honest, open relationship with the therapist. Another victim came forward, who was 11 when Fentress abused him. Fentress took the stand, Question, is it possible that you molested both boys but repressed the memory? Answer, it is entirely possible. Question, do you now believe their stories are true? Answer, yes, I think they are two highly credible individuals at this point. Question, could you have molested other boys? Answer, I pray there were no others. In the end, Fentress was sent back to maximum security mid-Hudson, where he is to this day and will be able to petition for release in February of 2020. So that is the very disturbing case of Paul Masters and Albert Fentress. I just don't understand, and, and may, maybe the, the repression of something else could could cause things, but how does somebody who's relatively normal right his whole life turned into a monster there was nothing that stood out in his childhood i mean his father was very strict you have to be bonkers to begin with and you're kind of pushing that insanity you're trying to push it out of your mind half of your life and then you just wear almost like a a, a click goes off and maybe it was when they vandalized his house and you know but maybe that was just kind of like the the button that went off and then started have him spiral out of control i 
Uh, this was a very interesting one. I feel I feel for the victim. I feel for the victim's family. I really do. Like, that's horrible. I liked very much going in not knowing anything about the case because I feel like the reactions are, are more organic. And I I would be curious to see what other people think. And I'd love for them to leave comments. Um, I, I think that it's really cool to kind of go in just like the listener, not really knowing anything about the case. Do let us know what you think of it. Email us at nefariousny at yahoo.com. Nefarious New York. Thanks for listening. That concludes another episode. The judge had to issue his conditions for his release. Meanwhile, Governor George Pataki and New York State Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, the third, <laughs>